Beloved, if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have your Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. I think that's page 553, if memory serves me correct. From earlier to this morning, not as if I know it. My wife grew up in the Woodlands, uh, Texas, and when she was a little girl, she played in a soccer league called Fun Fair Positive Soccer. I, the, the point of the league was to encourage everyone, no matter where they were in their skill set, uh, it was to alleviate parents of the frustration of overcompetitiveness. And overall, it was meant to be a, a great encouragement uh, to anyone who was playing soccer. And my wife uh, was a tremendous soccer player. Um, that's not true. Um, I, I, I have this sense as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes that it will not feel like fun, fair, positive soccer to our souls. Uh, but uh, it is good for our hearts. And especially as we go through the prologue today, uh, it kind of sets up the whole book for us uh, to kind of to situate us before we get into the text. This book is very raw. It's real. It's honest. It, it, it conveys in the most profound ways the frustrations of life. Uh, it, it encroaches on us the areas of life that we don't like to talk about. Uh, the areas we don't like to admit and perhaps even opens up our minds to the areas we don't understand. Uh, in a concise reality, the book of Ecclesiastes provides for us what life is like outside of the Garden of Eden. Uh, what life is like under the sun as it describes a cursed and fallen world for us. One of the popular phrases throughout the book is life under the sun which is where all of humanity lives for all time, since the garden. And this book points to the difficulties, the toils, the hardships that we all face. When God gave forward his judgment in Genesis 3 and the language that toil would only bring forth thorns and thistles, God was providing or reporting for us a world outside of the garden. And the book of Ecclesiastes, as the author, author is going to detail for us, is reporting of what that world is like. And that's the world that we find ourselves today in, in confirming the words that God gave to us in the garden, that this is going to be a difficult exodus for us outside of the garden. The book of Ecclesiastes is a different book. It's unique from all other books in the canon of Scripture. Uh, yes, it's a part of the wisdom literature and the writings, but it's the only book in the canon that would be considered pessimistic literature, which is really from the ancient Near East. And this type of literature conveys the deep tragedies of life. Uh, this book is going to cover for us uh, the reality of death and of aging. The foolishness of human wisdom, which the author describes as folly. It's going to talk about the meaninglessness in things like work and time and politics and empty religion. Suggesting, actually, that nothing has a point. It's not exactly encouraging when you read it at face value. Yet, unlike normal pessimism literature... 
Ecclesiastes actually does provide a point for us. It, it drives us to a place of hope, a purpose in this life. It forces us to consider that there really is no hope east of Eden. And it creates within us a desire to return to a greater garden uh, one day when our king returns. This life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning in it, the author will tell us, apart from knowing God, which is ultimately where our hope is found and dwells. And ultimately, this book drives us to that. It does have good news uh, throughout the book. Slices are in it. Uh, little uh, enjoyment passages, they're called. Uh, it does help us and teach us how to rightly view the things that God gives us. Things that uh, the author in this first passage calls vanity, but he redeems them ultimately. Things like, how do we rightly define family and interact with our family, food, and things like work? It teaches us to fear God and to worship God and uh, to keep his commandments and how to walk, rightly walk in wisdom. So there are these glimpses of hope pushing us to a reality of the need that we have for fellowship with God. It teaches us where to search for satisfaction, and it actually provides real answers. Uh, not cheap, inauthentic answers, but real, meaningful, deep answers to topics such as the meaning of life, injustice, and the perspective of everything. It is truly raw. It actually kind of sort of trains us to recognize that all the questions that we do have in this life will not be answered necessarily. But by the end of the book, we see that there is a really important thing, and that's for us to know God and to obey God. And there is hope in that. Uh, we do see these reverberations of Eden echoed throughout, uh, of what a hope restored will look like. So even in the tragedies of description that are found in this book, there is hope yet on the other side. Uh, this book teaches us how to die. It, it teaches us to number our days. And so subsequently, it actually teaches us how to live. Uh, so often, we like to try to live without considering death. That book, this book addresses just that. Uh, there truly is something for everyone in this book. I, I must admit to you that I'm thankful to be preaching this book at the age and stage of life that I'm in. You know, I'm in uh, the middle years of my life now. I, I've lived enough life to see the, the absurdity of life. I, I, I've seen that uh, there's heartbreak and, and brevity. I've seen the, the fragility and the monotony of life. It's passing by ever, quick, ever, ever quickly. I've seen the foolishness of striving and, and toil and seeking satisfaction. And so as, I, as I've prepared uh, the study, it has been a great refreshment to my life about the realities that are in it. So this book invites us, all of us, into the troubles of life. And so prepare yourself. Uh, kind of uh, square yourself up for it. For the seasoned saint, uh, for those who have lived a little bit more life under the sun... We should recognize that if we put our hope in this life, we will be miserable. 
And you probably know that uh, better than, than those who are younger. In fact, if you are miserable in this life, this book is going to reveal to you that more than likely you are putting your hope, hope in it rather than the one who made life. It is frustratingly repetitive, but that is the nature of the curse. And this book begins to shed light on that. To the, to the older saint, friends, this book actually prepares you for death. It prepares you, uh, uh, all of us, for death. Those who are older, it prepares you for death. You, you know better than all of us, those who are older, uh, uh, how much life is a vapor and how quickly it goes by. Uh, it's a reminder to you, older saint, that the better days are not behind you. There's no reason to look there. The, the, the better days are actually now as you find contentment in God and as your hope is in a restored Eden. A younger state, this book provides significant help in defining what you should expect in this life. All of us, uh, you know, after college, we're shot out of a cannon. We're zealous. We're ready to conquer the world. This book rightly puts into perspective what we should expect trains us how to live. It, it, it allows us to see how we should pursue things rightly. Uh, there's, there's great teaching in this book for you who are younger. And I, I would encourage you, young saint, to listen and to consider what God's word says as we go through this book. If you're in this congregation today and you're hopeless or you're a doubter and you're struggling I would encourage you to bring all of your doubts and your fears and your frustrations uh, to the feet of God's teaching here. Uh, we'll discuss real things like what is actual joy. Uh, we're going to discuss death. We are going to discuss the meaning of life. If you're a new Christian or a non-Christian, you don't have to have a lot of backstory in the Bible. We're not talking about a lot of covenants. We're not talking about Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. David is only mentioned here at the beginning. Uh, it, it is a book, no matter where one is in life, you can relate to it because you've experienced it. Uh, if you're an atheist, I would encourage you to listen. You'll actually resonate with some of the words that this author is bringing forward. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you, if you're sharing the gospel with an atheist, to maybe start in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because they can say, I get it. I get the absurdity of life. It's a great place to start when sharing the gospel. A few hermeneutical principles as we begin. Like all books, we need the other 65 books in the canon to help us interpret the scripture. Uh, we need them to shed light on it. Uh, uh, this is one big story from Genesis to Revelation. It's a one story knit together. It's not a bunch of episodes. We've, we've talked about this. And so it's good news that the book of Ecclesiastes is not the final book. But it, it's good to, to know that later on in the story, one helps us to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I just wanted to bring that reminder to us as we get going. Scripture does interpret Scripture. Uh, no Scripture contradicts another text. And if Ecclesiastes is left by itself, we have many questions. But when we live on this side of the resurrection and the ascension, we're able to interpret this book even better than Solomon. And that should encourage your heart. Uh, main point for our sermon today is simply this. Without Christ, everything is meaningless. 
Without Christ, everything is meaningless. And we're going to have two points to our text today, just two. Uh, But before we go to the points, I I want us to agree upon something. Before we go to Christ, before we go and find our hope in Christ, which we will end at today, as we will every week in the book of Ecclesiastes, we actually must make a camp east of Eden. We have to let the text do work on our hearts. So so bring your lunch pail and your hard hat and just recognize that the scripture has to do some work on us today so that we can actually enjoy the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. If we skip over this part, it will maybe ultimately be meaningless. Look with me in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The first point I want us to see today is this, all is meaningless. Like I said, we got to be east of Eden before we go back to the garden, okay? So all is meaningless. In the Hebrew, the word for preacher is kohelet, which, which means one who gathers or one who assembles. It's the Greek version of the word ekklesia, which also means gathering or assembly. So the kohelet gathers, and we don't exactly know how to, tr- to translate this word. Uh, some of your um, uh, Bibles might read preacher or teacher or speaker, but it's one who gathers a people and he speaks something of importance to them. And so we have a preacher in the book, and, and who is the preacher? Well, the text gives us a major clue, as you see there in verse 1. He's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this book was more than likely authored by the king by King Solomon, and, and that is up for scholarly d- debate. But Solomon is the only one who fits the title as the son of David who reigned over united Israel. And so uh, a, a faithful interpretation would suggest that it is Solomon who is the author of this book. And, and we see throughout the book that there's different situations that Solomon's life actually fits with. Uh, the construction of great buildings and the temple and all that he accomplished and um, everything that Solomon experienced in, in, in his life kind of fits the wisdom that God gave him to express such words as we see in Ecclesiastes. Now, tradition suggests that Solomon was more than likely an older man because such wisdom in life can only be understood by one who is old and has made mistakes. Solomon did not deny himself anything, right? We see this in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 11. He, he didn't hold anything back from himself. And, and we also see Solomon just neg- neglected all the teaching that was given to the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And so what we see in this book is one who is writing with great regret, who recognizes Uh, what life should have been about and and, and mistakes that were made along the way. And look what the author says uh, as he he talks about how he tried to get his fill in this life, but it didn't satisfy. Look in verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is vanity. 
Uh, the, the word for vanity is hevel, which means more than merely looking in the mirror and feeling good about uh, yourself, like we kind of connote vanity to be today, like we're just vain people hoping to be pretty. It, it has a much deeper meaning to it. It means meaningless. In, in fact, it says hevel of hevels, as you see there, vanity of vanities, which means the meaningless as it could possibly be meaningless. Uh, like the holy of holies. There's no greater place of holiness in the temple uh, as the writers in the Old Testament describe. The holy place that God dwells, the holy of holies. In the same way, this is the hevel of hevels. This is the meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Quite discouraging. Hevel means a vapor. It it means fleeting. It means elusive. Uh, It's describing the nature of life. It's that idea in Isaiah 40 that the grass withers and the flower, flowers fade. It's what James describes in chapter 4, that your life is vanishing. That's what the writer here is pushing us to understand. The word hevel is used 38 times throughout the book. It, it, it's describing, he's trying to make the point. Everything is meaningless unless we have a life that is in fellowship with God. Think about the contrast this way. We know that after God made the heavens and the earth, he said that they were good. But after the the curse, they're described as hevel. Everything is meaningless. That contrast is helpful for us to understand what's going on. So life is frustrating. And why is it frustrating? Well, because it's fleeting. Because it's a vapor. Because it's breath. Have you ever been to London and experienced the actual London fog? I'm not talking about the hipster drink from Starbucks, London fog. The actual fog in London, when you see the fog and you go up to the fog and you try to grasp the fog, that, that air just slips through your fingers as you try to make sense of it. It's not as dense as you think it's going to be. In fact, there's really nothing around you. You can see better than you thought you can see, and that's kind of a picture of what's going on here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Beloved, do you find your life as kind of this elusive experience that you're going through? Are you viewing it in that way? How much do we still try to control this life that he's describing as fleeting and elusive? We we try to find gratification in so many different places, do we not? entertainment and power and resources and all these places, but they cannot satisfy. And that's the point he's driving home here. And and I think that's something that we have to understand for us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, we are going to talk about the good gifts of God and how those can be enjoyed and redeemed. But we can't understand those until we understand that life without God, truly, all that we do is meaningless And Solomon drives home this point in verses 3 through 11 in a pretty profound way. And that brings us to our second point today. All is meaningless because all our toil is meaningless. Now, do you still have your your hard hat and your lunch pail? Are we still making a tent out there east of Eden? Because that's where we still need to be right now. East of Eden, there's hevel of hevel in our toil. All of our work, all the things that we do in this Life are meaningless when we're devoid of God. 
And he provides three disparaging descriptions of all the toils that we do in this life. In verses 3 through 8, he talks about how our toil actually has no profit. It has no gain. Uh, In verses 9 and 10, he says that all of our toil actually doesn't produce anything that is new. And then if that's not enough, he says in verse 11, and you will not be remembered as a person or anything that you ever do will be remembered. Be encouraged. Happy 2023. Right? Let's look first at our toil has no profit, verses 3 through 8. Look with me in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain in this life for all of his efforts? That's what he's asking. That Hebrew word for gain means to profit from your work. And will it ultimately lead to show us what we get for all of our toil, all of our labor? And the answer is quite frustrating. We get nothing for everything that we ever do. And this is what he is bringing out. We understand this, right? Like how many of us work and we expect to get a paycheck every two weeks? You expect to have that paycheck so you can pay your bills and and do all these things. But what Solomon is driving home is at the end of your life, all the work that you did, you don't get a paycheck for. So he's really bringing out some wonderful things for us uh, to consider. It reminds me of Mark 8 when Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Now, Solomon does ask this rhetorical question in verse 3, and that rhetorical question is incredibly important. So underline that in your Bible. He says, what does man gain by all the toil that he does? And he provides his own observations for this. He he essentially notes that there is a ton of activity. There, There appears to be a ton of progress, but ultimately there is no change in this life east of Eden. There is no advantage. There is no profit. Look what he says in verse 4 for further encouragement. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. A generation comes and a generation goes and the earth remains forever. Notice that he doesn't say a generation's come and generations go. We say that often. That kind of connotes the idea of brevity of life. But Solomon says they go and they come, which suggests the monotonous cycle of life. One generation replaces another generation. In all our work, nothing is added, and then another generation comes behind us, and none of their work is added either. There's six living generations right now in the earth. Uh, Raise your hand to prove a point if you're a baby boomer. Just, I think it's like six... I don't even, I'm not even going to guess, 46 to 64. Okay, great, I see. You're not babies anymore, right? Uh, So uh, you were a a part of the boom of being a baby, but you are no longer a baby because you are now moving towards what is most certainly your death. And and this is the idea that he is getting at. We we don't stay as we are. We cycle and we cycle. No, humanity changes through Going and coming, but look what it says there in verse 4. But the earth remains. But the earth remains. So that, that's kind of a proverbial slap to the face, is it not? If you remember from the garden that man was placed on the earth to rule it. And we did for a time. 
until the beast ruled us. And what is the consequence uh, to uh, the beast ruling us? Well, that the height of God's creation, which is humanity, since we're made in the image of God, is actually outlasted by the dirt and the rocks and the water. I love what the church father Jerome says. He says, what is more vain than this vanity? That the earth, which was made for humans, stays but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. Solomon pushes in in verses 5 through 8. He drives this point home of the weary monotony in all of creation. And he points out three natural examples for us to observe, to help us understand his point. Look with me in verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastes to the place where it rises. Verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around the wind goes and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All three of these natural features that Solomon is driving home are circular. They're, they're, they're cycling, moving, and appearing to progress. Yet the same cycle remains over and over Again, it's like a hamster on a wheel, right? You've seen it. They're running, and they're not going anywhere. The sun cycles. The wind goes round and round. The, waters le the water levels, they never increase. This is it. The same sun that warmed our Lord when he was here, the same wind that blew against his tent remains. The same water he drank is the same water we still drink. The vanity of life. There is no profit. There's no gain. Nothing stops and nothing fills up. Solomon then goes back to the pinnacle of creation in verse 8, which is humanity, since we're made in the image of God. And he says, all things are full of weariness. And then he gives the example of man. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing it, nor the ear filled with hearing it. You will never be satisfied. Just like the ocean will never be satisfied with the water cycling in and out of it. We will never be satisfied with all the things we speak, all the things we see, and all the things we hear. We always have something more to say. We always have another opinion to give. Uh, we always have another complaint to offer or an opinion to consider. Uh, flattery never advances us to the place that we hoped that it would over and over Again, uh, we haven't seen enough of creation, so we have to go and see the things that God has created. Uh, we've been to many cities of the world, but we want to go see more cities in the world. We keep scrolling on our phone because we think that the next image might in fact satisfy us, but it doesn't. So we scroll right again, or we scroll up again. We think we've heard enough. But we keep returning to the same songs over and over again. Uh, no new song remains our favorite song. Uh, no gossip that we hear is enough gossip. No details of a story are enough details. We want more and more and more. The preacher's point is simply this. Humanity tries to come across something that is going to break the, perver the, the, the cycle of monotony. It's going to try to, to pierce through with hope in some way, but everything that we see, say, hear, do 
does not satisfy. And so we keep going back to it over and over again. We keep cutting our grass over and over again. Ladies and some men, we keep trimming our dead ends over and over again. The laundry never stops. We always have to brush our teeth. Nothing ever satisfies. I hope you do. Uh, uh, Nothing ever satisfies over and over again. We keep waiting for circumstances to change. And we're cursed with this idea. If this one variable just changed in my life, then everything in my life would be better. And then it happens. And it's great for a moment. And then it doesn't satisfy. Right? We see this even in our Christmas gifts. We can't even remember who gave us what gift or where the gift is from. Maybe a gift doesn't satisfy. It does not satisfy. Well, look at the second thing he says. There is no new thing, verses 9 and 10. And to help matters, Solomon says that there actually is no new thing ever. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a, a thing in which is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Uh, even in our toil, brothers and sisters, we cannot create something new. Uh, we, we cannot do something that hasn't already been done. We, we do start out in this life with all this idealism, thinking that we're going to change the world. And he just levels us right here. And he said, there's actually nothing new under the sun. And, and, and you might be saying, well, Blair Solomon didn't have an iPhone. And, and, that's, and that's true. But, but the, the iPhone that we take selfies with uh, reveals the same self-centeredness or the self, self-gratification that Solomon has to accumulate for himself a thousand wives. Uh, uh, the iPhone that communicates things uh, to people. Uh, Communication has always been. Uh, You might say, yeah, but Blair, did you hear that we might be colonizing Mars? And it's like, did you know we've colonized the whole world now? It's what we do. We go, we conquer, we build over and over again, and it's not enough. That's why we have to go to Mars. That's the point. I love what Kidner says, a theologian. He said, the more things change, the more they reveal that they're very same. And this is what he is getting at. There is no net gains. Humanity is forced to admit that they don't have the ability to create, to create out of nothing, to create anything new. We have to, we have to, we have to recognize this. And, 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 and recognizing our limitations should sober us up, right? It, it, should, it should encroach upon all the things that we think we're good at. And, and it should really be considered a gift from God that we have to recognize this truth about us. And, and, and if that's not enough, then the hits just keep on coming in verse 11. And then he says, and you will not be remembered. So there is no remembrance of former things, verse 11, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. Everything that you are doing and everything that you will do will not be remembered. (laughs) 
That is sobering. Someday we'll ha- somebody will have your job, and somebody will have their job, and on and on it goes. Simply put, you are going to die. We are going to die, and all the work that we are doing right now is also going to go with us to the grave. Uh, I knew one of my great-grandparents. Uh, I called her Mimi. I was like four when she died. I don't know a whole lot about her. In fact, my kids are learning about her for the very first time right now. And she was just four generations ago. I don't know how she lived. I've heard a few stories about her, but I didn't know her. I don't know the work that she put in or the labor that she had or the brokenheartedness that she walked through or the joys of her life. I didn't know her. And your fourth generation won't know you either. And this really should, as I said earlier, this should level us. Uh, do, Do you not feel like dust right now? I think that's Solomon's intention to drive us to the place where we see our fragility, our, our, our weakness. This is life under the sun. This is life east of Eden. It is absurd. The, the meaninglessness and the frustration, remember, is being described by the king of Israel who had in his possession all the things that we are going for in our lives right now. And he's saying, not enough doesn't satisfy it's totally absurd vanity of vanities all is vanity so so what do we try to do in this life and and this is life not just this is life not just for the non-christian this is for the christian too we recognize the monotony of life as a christian and in fact we should be the first to recognize it for what it is as we have a right purview of it how do we try to deal with the, these realities of our life? We try to numb ourselves. Is that not true? We try to uh, be satisfied with our, our screen time. We're, we're addicted to things. We're, we're trying to live from one fun moment to another. And then we go down and we get blue when we're not in a fun moment. On Monday and Tuesday, do you not long for the weekend? And then it gets here, and it's great, and then it goes away, just over and over and over. Solomon wants us to recognize that we should see the effects of the curse in the life that we live, in the world that we live in. This is what he's driving at. Now, in this, there is actually immense kindness from God in showing us the meaninglessness of life. Uh, he is charitable in revealing this to us because it is meant to drive us to a better garden. It's meant to drive us to Christ, who is the meaningfulness of life. In what Paul writes in Romans 8, that word for futility, for the creation was subject to futility. It's that same idea of vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even creation that outlasts us is longing for its futility to be reversed. And same with humanity within it. Beloved, at the end of Ecclesiastes, 
it really does point us to the hope that we have. This is an inclusio. He lays out this prologue which shows the vanity of vanities, and then he shows us, hey, I've learned that all in life that is most important is to know God and to obey him. Uh, it says in verse 11 of chapter 3 that the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given to us by one shepherd. That one shepherd is our shepherd, the messianic shepherd. Verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this duty is the duty of all mankind. That's where Solomon ends at, hope in knowing God. But here's the reality. It drives us to something more on this side of the Messiah, because like Solomon, we have not kept the commandments. Uh, we have not feared God. We have sought satisfaction in all the things of life, all the places that don't satisfy. If you remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, this is a part of that. And then listen to what it says in Luke 24, 46, or, uh, 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's a right way to understand this book, and then there's not. And so our hope is to show throughout this book that though we're talking about things that are full of vanity, there's actually, it's purposeful in driving us to a person. And that person is Jesus. In order for us to interpret Ecclesiastes rightly, we must do so in light of the crucified and risen Lord. I hope you write that down. We cannot understand this book unless we do so through the lens of the crucified and risen Lord. Do you remember that question in verse 3? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Jesus is the answer to verse 3. We gain Christ. We gain a new garden with a new king. Jesus is the one who broke into the monotonous cycle that we find ourselves living in. When he entered under the sun and he broke it. He is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so how are we going to respond today? Well, here's how we're going to respond very simply. We're going to consider Christ for just a few minutes. And we're going to do it every single week as we go through this book the first thing I want us to see is this. Jesus brings meaningfulness. Jesus brings meaningfulness. The contrast to the meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes 1 through 11 is answered in the meaningfulness of Jesus. I would actually encourage you to visit Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 often to remember what life actually is outside the sun. And there we can be driven to the answer to the question that's asked in verse 3. Jesus brings meaningfulness. This prologue sets up our hearts to recognize that we are hopeless apart from Jesus. So we now set our hope in the gospel. This is what we get to do. We're, we're hopeless, but actually now we can find hope 
in Jesus. Here's the second thing for us to consider. Jesus is the greater Solomon. Jesus is the greater Solomon. How do we know this? He actually said it. Matthew 12, he said, something greater than Solomon is here. So in all the toil of Solomon's thoughts and his philosophies and his errors and his, and his obedience, Jesus comes and he says, there's something greater than Solomon, and it's me. Uh, we see that he's even wiser than Solomon. We know that Solomon was given wisdom from God. We see this, and we're actually going to see this here next week. We're going to talk more about this. But Jesus, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. He doesn't just have wisdom from God. He is the wisdom of God. He's greater than Solomon. And number three, Jesus brings a new work under the sun. Guys, it's describing, this book is describing all the vanities of life under the sun. And so what did God do in his kindness? He came underneath the sun. And he entered this world. And he went and died. And we know that a seed goes and dies and then it brings forth life. And that's exactly what the sun did underneath the sun. There is something finally new here. There is something new under the sun. And his name is Jesus his toil, his work is not like our work. It changed everything when he entered this frustrating life. He bore it all, but then he conquered it. Because Jesus breaks the cycle of death in the passing generations. We see in Revelation 1, he conquered death. Ecclesiastes brings us to the very brink of all of our fears, which is death. And then Jesus answers the one who overcomes death, which provides us great hope in our heart. He destroys all these frustrations by his death and resurrection. That's why we celebrate and live in light of the new resurrection. Do you remember how we were talking about how all of our work is not profitable? His work is profitable. Uh, he takes a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. His grace and his mercies are made new to us every morning because he conquered death. He really did change everything. He went east of Eden to make all things new and to bring us back to the garden. I do remember how we were talking about how there's really nothing new under the sun. He's actually making everything new. Revelation 21 says that he is reversing the curse. That he is going to drive us back to a new heavens and a new earth where he's going to be our king forever. And so our work, our toil gets us nowhere. We can create nothing. But then he comes in and he says, I'm actually going to make all of this new again. He's going to do all the things we can't do. Do you remember how we talked about how our work's going to be forgotten? His work is never forgotten. From everlasting to everlasting, he is Christ. Uh, we, all of us, for the church history for 2,000 years has been eating the Lord's Supper, right, all the time. And we're saying, do this in remembrance of me. We haven't forgotten it. And the people before us will not forget it. 
because he is making all things new and his work will not be forgotten. What I think this book is going to show us as we close our time today is simply this. It's going to teach us to live under the sun. It's actually going to show us that everything we do is actually meaningful. Uh, Now, we couldn't get to meaningfulness apart from Christ, but it's going to show us how we live under the sun because of the work of the sun. And it's going to train us in this. Our work and, and everything is now meaningful. And in fact, it will be remembered. And, and we're going to talk about this as we go. Uh, we do need to settle in our minds today that death is real. And that it is going to happen to all of us. Uh, it, it might happen to some of us this year. And that is the reality But if we let the reality of death seep into our minds and affect us to our very core, it might actually teach us how we can live in the sun by faith. We know this. We know know that it's all meaningful. That's why we try to numb ourselves from it sometimes. Or meaningless. That's why we try to numb ourselves from it sometimes. And then we act like it's not. I I think we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy trying to reject the idea that we're going to die. But we are going to die. But those in Christ are raised to walk in new life. And he conquered death for us. And Ecclesiastes is going to show us this in a beautiful way. Are you ready? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you have shown us that truly everything is vain. Everything really is meaningless apart from knowing your beloved son. Father, we're going to talk about wisdom and, and power and justice and all these things. Father, would you rightly center our heart to filter all of it through the fact that Jesus conquered death, rose again, reigns on high, and is making all things new. Teach us to number our days. Teach us how to die so that we can actually live today. Help us to enjoy rightly the things that you give us as we walk through this passage, this this book, and teach us to find our hope where only hope can be found in the crucified and risen Lord, the one who answers the question of Ecclesiastes, what gain is there in all the toil? Christ is the gain because of his toil and his work. We pray in his name, amen.